This is Michael Cowan, and welcome to Trial Lawyer Nation. When the jury panel comes into the courtroom and the bailiff says, all rise, I know we're here. And it doesn't matter who they are, nobody should be above the law. A lot of us talk about that, but you've actually done it. That's how you also maintain quality control over your practice. Yeah. That's a question I get asked a lot, and here's the answer. Welcome to the award-winning podcast, Trial Lawyer Nation, your source to win bigger verdicts, get more cases, and manage your law firm. And now, here's your host, noteworthy author, sought-after speaker, and renowned trial lawyer, Michael Cowan. Today on Trial Lawyer Nation, I'm here with R. Rex Paris. Rex is an incredible lawyer out of Lancaster, California, who's gotten uh, fantastic results. We're talking eight, even I think some nine-figure verdicts. Is that right? That's correct. Uh, And he's been nice enough to let me come to his office and talk to him about uh, how he got to be where he is and some things he's learned that work for him that maybe will help us become better lawyers. Well, you know, I'd like to say it was all planned, (laughs) but life was never planned. I mean, yeah, I mean, certainly you have plans, but it never works out the way you, you would hope. Um, uh, I agree. I, I, before I started law school, I had lunch with my uncle, who was the chief of staff for a state senator that got elected on a tort reform uh, platform, mm-hmm. and a guy named Bill Summers, who started the Citizens Against Lawsuit Abuse Group, and I promised I would never be one of those plaintiff's lawyers. Yeah, and, uh, yeah. Four years later, there I was. <laughs> you know, the, the story of the guy who started the MICRA, you know, the, the cap medical malpractice in California, and successfully did so, ended up with just a horrible uh, medical malpractice case and was capped at 250. Oh, my gosh. You know? uh, and he wrote about it. Just, you know, it was just horrible that how, how the world turned on it. Yeah. You know? And... Uh, what if we had been able to do it again? You know? So, what are some of the things you've done, I guess, to get the the skills that you've developed uh, as a trial lawyer? Well, you know, the first thing I did was I had to learn that it was a skill. You know, because I, I think too often we we somehow are imbued with the the thought that. There are a certain number of people that are born with the talent to be a trial lawyer, you know, where the reality is, is that they're just skills. And anybody who who gets through law school certainly has the capacity to learn those skills and do a magnificent, not just a good job, but a magnificent job in the courtroom, regardless of, of what their IQ might be or the school they went to or who their parents were. Uh, all of the things that, that we somehow think are determinative of it really aren't. You know, it, it, uh, but it took a long time for me to find out, and it was until I went to the Trial Lawyers College. And uh, it was uh, Paul Rivera uh-huh. who said, these are just skills, and you've got to learn them one at a time. And they're discrete skills. And, and the problem that we also seem to have is... You know, you don't learn how to take a deposition. You learn how to ask different types of questions. You learn how to mirror the, the person you're talking to. You learn how to listen to him. You learn how to, how to get him to keep talking. You know, and those are all very discrete skills. And as soon as I grasped that that's really what I was looking at, 
I, I knew it was going to be easy because I can learn anything. You know, if it's learnable, I can learn. When did you go to the Trial Lawyers College? Ninety-six. Okay. No, no, no. Ninety-five. Ninety-five. Yeah. I actually went in ninety-eight. So okay. very, very close. And uh, it's interesting the difference. I mean, how how long had you been practicing when you went? Well, I started in eighty, so probably ten, fifteen years. Yeah, it's interesting to see the difference between having a set of skills first and then going, whereas I, when I went, I tried a few car wreck cases, but I was three years out of law school. Uh, and I think the plus of that is that I got exposed to a lot of things really early mm-hmm. uh, and didn't have bad habits to unlearn. Right. I think the minus is at 28, I don't know if I was quite ready to be as real as I needed to be to fully uh, develop and appreciate and take advantage of everything there. There's a lot of, I think in trial work, you know, a lot of learning to, to trust strangers, a lot of uh, yeah, teachers, a lot of, you know, just having more life experience. I think I think being a parent, for example, has helped me try cases and understand loss and understand uh, just going through tragedies and losses in my own life has, has made me a better lawyer, if that makes any sense. Well, I think as we age, we, we certainly learn what's important and what's not. Uh, uh, and, you know, I mean, I'm, I'm, I really don't think it's any of my business what you think of me. Yeah. But when I was younger, I, I was really concerned what people thought of me. Yeah. And, you know, when I, when I find myself going down that path now, it, I stop. It's really none of my business what you think of me. Really? Yeah, I, I really think that. Because as soon as I start being concerned about what you think, then you are now in control of how I behave. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And, and I, I've never found that to be beneficial. Yeah. So. so besides the trial lawyers college, what else have you done to try to learn the skills that you need to be a great trial lawyer? Well, the, what the trial lawyers college gave me was just the, the recognition that they are skills, and so then I ended up doing a lot of NLP you know, uh, seminars of that kind, a lot of public speaking seminars, a lot of voice seminars. You know, anything that I could see that was a, a had a skill set that could you know cross domains. That that's what I would do. Uh, and then it, somehow I ended up just studying a lot of cognitive science. And, you know, we've had a renaissance in that in the last 15, 20 years. And every day there's something new and exciting coming out about how people make decisions and how you can, you can persuade people and how you can uh, interact and engage people. And, uh, you know, if, if I have one, cons- one regret about aging is that that journey will end, you know, because I, I really do enjoy getting up every morning and, and studying the stuff, you know. That's amazing. It's, it's amazing to me how the more people I've met that are, I guess, viewed as being at the top, uh, the one thing I've seen in common is the constant desire to learn more, the constant application of, the, I mean, they, the y'all who's most people say, well, you've already made it, you've already figured it out, uh, seem to spend a lot more time trying to get better. Well, yeah, I, I, 
I, I've never been comfortable with the view, uh, other people's view of my success, because I certainly don't feel it. You know, I certainly don't identify, you know, myself as that. Uh, uh, we're, we're in with my assistant, Evelyn's with us, and last week she saw one of my presentations for the first time. And before it started, I was telling her, watch what happens. This other person, it's not me, it's somebody else. He gets up and, and does this three hours, you know, of what we're doing. But I really don't relate to him, you know, because I, I still have the same fears and the same... Uh, insecurities that I've always had. They're, they're not as pronounced, they're not as, as mind-numbing as they have been at times, or, or as paralyzing, but they're still there. And, but I, you know, I get up and I do this confident thing for three hours and take any question that comes and, and just have the best time, but it's not me. <laughs> you know? I, I don't know if I've articulated that well, but, you know. But that's uh, that's learning. That's what I do, you know. And I learn how to do that. But it. Uh, but again, they're just skills, and they're not really my personality. Mm -hmm. Does that make sense? Yeah, it does. Huh. So, what are some of the things you learned from your researching cognitive science that have uh, been useful in a courtroom? Well, it's everything from where I stand to where I look and where I, what I do with my hands, uh, what I do with my body. You know, it's how to keep the fear level down by controlling your heartbeat. You know, what is fear? Fear is, is something that's going to happen in the future. It's not something that is happening now. You know, I mean, you're still breathing. You're still yeah. alive. Nobody's got a knife in your back. I mean, you're just afraid that that might happen, right? So it's a future event. And you, it's impossible to be afraid if your heart rate is not too fast. Now, I do want an accelerated heartbeat because it puts you in the zone. You know, it's called Dirk U, where, where you are in the zone of peak performance. But I want that to be between 90 and 100. Anything over 100, I start losing cognitive capacity. So now I have a... You know, I mean, think, science is wonderful today. Yeah. I wear a watch, and it tells me when my heartbeat reaches 100. And then I have techniques I use to lower it if that occurs. And like, I teach all those to my lawyers. Like, like, how do you lower the heart rate? There's a thing called combat breathing. You know, you, you breathe in at a count of four, hold it for a count of four, breathe out at a count of four, hold it for a count of four. You know, it's a four box. Uh -huh. the, before you do that, depending on if you have time, you know, usually the time I'm most afraid is right before I start to pick a jury. You know, that's always scary for me. Yeah. But I always have time, you know, and I, I uh, you know, the first thing you do is, what do you see? Well, like we're sitting in this room and I'm looking at your your fancy tape recorder with the two, <laughs> two uh, microphones on it and it's black and it's got a red light on it. And it's, what do I see, right? And then it's, what do I feel? Well, you know, I'm feeling the floor on the, my left foot because my foot is bent on my toes. And What do I physically feel in the chair? Then what do I feel emotionally? Well, I'm a little nervous that this might sound pretty stupid. You know, this might sound crazy. So I'm a little nervous about that. I'm a little apprehensive. Uh, and then when I get to that point, then I breathe. 
I do the four box. I do that for a little bit, and then it's, I'm back. And I say that to myself, I'm back. And I smile, and I'm back, you know, and I'm ready to go on. Uh, and I find that the reason you do that is it brings you into the present. Fear something that happens in the future. So get out of the future. Take yourself into the present. Lower the heart rate. And then dive in the pool. You know, get ready to perform. Uh, and I've found that to be very successful. Yeah. You know, I've been trying something, and I don't know if this is similar to what you're describing as when I'm in trial, I try to have the joy of being in trial and let the outcome take care of itself. That doesn't mean I don't work really hard and no, I don't I really want saying. to win, but like the more I want to win and I worry about winning, then the less I trust the jurors and then that comes yeah. through either in body language or eye contact or something. And when I just say, I'm just going to trust these people to do the right thing. I'm going to put on the best trial and I'm going to have fun doing it. It seems to yes. work better. Yeah, absolutely. I know exactly what you're saying. The... Uh, the uh, the last few trials we've had have been horribly injured people, but I got to do them with my sons who are now lawyers. You know, they're they're uh, late twenties, early thirties, and uh, and in, in big trials, you know, something terrible happens every day. You know, yeah. they find some record, they find some witness, they find something. They got some motion. You know, there's always something happening, and. And, you know, the, we always dump it on each other at the end of the day, right? Uh -huh. <laughs> you know, because we give you as little time as possible to deal with it. So as those things would occur, I kept telling them, I don't know how, I don't know what's going to happen tomorrow, and I don't know how we're going to do it. But at, when this issue's over, we will be better off than when it started. It will work in our favor. And... That just always seemed to happen. Now, why would that happen? One is, our client didn't do anything wrong. Our client is the victim here, right? All we have to do is get those facts in front of the jury. So all of that stuff they throw at you, nine times out of ten, if you don't panic, it'll be fine. It'll, and what I find is usually beneficial because we, you know, we... Since they were little, I was teaching them reversals. Uh -huh. you know, I hate to try a case against a bad lawyer because he doesn't give me anything to work with. What do you mean by reversals? I've heard you talk no. about that before. So, you know, the, the classic reversal is, well, in every scene of every movie or every play, there's a reversal in value, you know. Like it, it'll Star Wars. You start out in the desert, desolate, poor, and next thing you know, you're in. By the end of the scene, you're in the Empire with all of its grandeur. You know, there's a reversal. For you know, the greater the contrast, the better. The so in a in a trial in commercials, you know, they'll go. They, you know, I have some favorites that I use, but it's it, you can see how it reverses. And comedy is a reversal of what you're going down one path and then you're off into another. You know, it's a reversal. So I've always pointed out the reversals to the kids so that when they got here and were lawyers, they would fully understand it, and now they do. Uh, but, like, they used to do this. They used to stand up in their closing and say... He just wants you to be their lottery ticket, 
right? His lottery ticket. They compare the verdict to the lottery ticket. You've had that? Yeah. I, I, until I heard one of your podcasts, I, I've always limited that out. I'm not, I don't think I'm going to now, but I want to hear it. Oh, no, you want it. You want them to say it. If they don't say it, I figure out how to say it uh, and blame them for it. But so, you know, I'll pick up a piece of paper and everybody. Here it is. This is that super four-state Powerball lotto ticket. The one he was talking about, and I'm looking at my client, and it's yours. And it's $164 million, and it's yours. But you got to give up a few things. And then you go through all of the things they've given up. I never go through what's been done to them, but because of what's been done to them, and because of the pain and suffering they have, what have they given up? You know, and it, it's oftentimes just being able to hold your spouse at night, but you can't bear the touch. Hmm. You know, I mean, I, my life would be so much less if I couldn't hold her at night. You know. Because, and how I know it would be so much less, because when she's mad at me and I can't, <laughs> I feel so adrift, right? And I think that's a universal feeling. The, uh, and you go through those things. And by that time, your client is usually crying. And then you turn to the jury and, anybody want it? Do you want it? And they'll shake their head no. Then you know you're okay. <laughs> <laughs> They quit using that with me. I bet. <laughs> you talked to... Can you explain a little bit more about the difference between what they've gone through and what they've lost? Well, you know, most of us have been trained to present the case in a pain and suffering context as to what's been done to them, you know. But in Western culture, and I don't think any culture, bad stuff doesn't have a value, you know. It's well-being that equals wealth in America and in Western culture. You know, I mean, uh, what would Steve Jobs have given for a pancreas that worked? Right? Yeah. You know? Well-being is wealth. And so that's what we talk about, is what aspects of that well-being have been taken away. And juries are much more inclined to compensate you for stuff that's been taken away and stuff that you've been denied rather than, you know, and the, the classic one I always use is the corns on my feet, you know, is I've got corns. You know, I've had them since I was 35. And, you know, they get in the way of a lot of things. When I used to ski, you know, they would hurt and my, when you clamp the snow, snow boot on, you know, and, or the ski boot on, and they... I'd have to go to a pedicure, get a pedicure every now and then. And back then, when you were sitting in a pedicure chair, people looked at you kind of funny. <laughs> and though I'd try to shave them myself, you know, and I'd cut them. And, and, I mean, they're just a mess. And, you know, I live in Lancaster, and I'm the mayor of Lancaster. You can't be the mayor of Lancaster if you don't wear boots. And if the corns get too bad, you can't wear your boots, right? Uh, so... I got these corns. What do you give me for them? I'll sell them to you. You can have them. It's it's ludicrous to make that argument. Yeah. To, but that's what we do time after time after time in front of a jury. So, yeah, we talk about the pain and suffering. 
but that's not what I ask them for. And sometimes I'll even say, take it, keep it, it's yours. You know, you got a discount. Don't give us one dime for the pain and suffering. Just compensate her for what they took. You know, that's a whole different argument, isn't it? And how do you discover, you know, because everyone's life is so different, how do you discover what they took? Well, you got to get to know your client real well. You know, we do a lot of things in that regard. We'll hire a psychodramatist to come in. We do the different role reversals. Go visit them in their home. Make sure they visit you in your home. You know, before I go to trial, we always have them over to the house. Oh, really? Oh, yeah. yeah. I mean, they have to be our friends when we go in there. It, because the jury will pick it up if they're not, you know. And they have to be comfortable enough with us to be in our home, you know. And until that happens, you know, they have this this image of us as their lawyer that is usually larger than life and not anywhere close to reality, you know. Uh, my barbecue doesn't taste much different than yours, you know. Uh, and it, I don't, I don't know. I, I I find it a lot easier to do the trial. You know, some of these trials take months, and I'm away from home. If my wife has met the client, and, yeah. and knows them, and you know, is, is uh, concerned about their well-being. I'm gonna have to try that. I mean, I've been really good about going to people's homes, and I find you just get a different feeling, and even yeah. one, you do get tangible things. You see the pictures on the wall, and. and you know, things they love to do, the people they love, and then you get to meet those people and discover more stories about them that the client might not mm-hmm. tell themselves or might not tell as well. Uh, but even when there's not something specific, I've just found the the emotion carries through. When, when you get a, a feel for something, then it... You only have your friends over to the house. Yeah. Yeah. That... that uh... You know, I mean, most most things in life, there's a circularity to it. You know, and it doesn't really matter where you disrupt the circle. You know? uh, do you become friends and invite them over, and, and the friendship seals, or just invite them over? And, yeah. You know, it. Uh, um, but yeah, that's always essential. And and you know, there's there's always the, the uh, it, you can love anybody. You know, it, it, it requires, if you, if, if you ask 36 questions and share that information with somebody, you can go on the Internet and get it, and then just look into each other's eyes for four minutes, you develop a relationship. You know? uh, it, it's, we're not nearly as complex as we like to think we are. So how do you present the what was taken away from the client at, you know, when you're presenting your evidence? Well, you don't present it through the client. You present it through the relatives and neighbors. You know, we're, we're always looking for the, the signal of trust through the noise. I mean, we're bombarded with noise, you know, especially trials. You know, you got two guys trying to sell you and... They're probably both overselling, and you know, there's this mistrust that a jury has to have and always will have. So they're looking for signals of trust in the noise. And I think the, the best signals are the people that know them the best. You know, what do the neighbors say? You know, like we, 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 my, I mean, I, I love the lawyers that work here, they, they really do well. 
and they really struggle to learn this stuff. And as a result, you know, every one of them that has been to trial has come back with million-dollar verdicts right out of the box. Wow. You know, now, it, but again, keep in mind, you know how you get a $50 million verdict? Say no to the $20 million <laughs> offer, right? I mean, yeah, not so easy. <laughs> You've got a great case to start with, right? Yeah. The, uh, but, you know, this, this one case was not worth nearly the money they got that in traditional settings until the neighbor came in and testified. And, and he said, you know, he used to be out in his yard all the time. You know, we'd talk, we would, you know, well, he was working on the yard, I'd be working on the yard, but, you know, I haven't seen him for the last couple of years. Wow. You know, I see him every now and then go in the house. Hasn't really talked much until you called me up and asked me to come here. Yeah, that's that's a real signal of trust. Yeah. You know, that this is real stuff. You you and so we're always asking, where's the signals of trust that we can show the jury? Because that's what they're looking for. And how do you find those people? Go knock on the door. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I mean, I, what I tell the lawyers that work for me is that the less likely the jury is to believe that they'll get any of the money, uh, they, the witnesses, the more likely they are to be believed. I so, think that's true. So, you know, you have spouses yeah. are very compelling as far as the stories right. they can tell, but they share the make account. And then... Yeah. But I find the further out you get, sure. And so I think one thing we've been doing is we've, you know, I got this from Rodney Jew. He asked, "What do they love to do before? What are they left with? And what are their hopes for the future?" And so it takes time, but we start, you know, one day just, "What do you love to do?" and try to get a, a good list. Right. And then we ask, "Well, who did you lo- who did you do these things with?" and and just spend the time and find out, okay, well, who are the people you love to play basketball? Who did you play with? Right. And, right. okay, you love to take your kid to the park. Did you ever go with anybody else? And you, you go through each of those things, and then you got to interview all those people. Mm-hmm. And then find out what's in them. Do I actually make good witnesses? And, and remember not to put leave them up there too long. Yeah. Juries want that case to move fast. And, and that took me a long time to realize. That's why we use a lot of video deposition testimony in the trials, you know. We we uh, as much video as we can. Really, because that's you know I've I've heard the opposite, but obviously you've done very well. What's your thinking behind using a lot of video in trial? Well, let me explain why I think it doesn't work. Is you go in and you you do your standard deposition, you know, the way we've all been taught, and so what the defense will do is want to play the whole thing. And then you got to fight like hell just to have the clips you want to be played. Yeah, how about that? let's just play it all the way through, Your Honor. And it's like they're asleep, you know, fifteen minutes right. into the three hours. Right. So there's, you're always running that risk. But you know what we've we've settled on is okay. We got the report, Doctor. Is this your, you know, the expert? This your report? Yes. Everything in there true? Anything you want to change? No. So this is what your opinions are. Well, blah blah blah. You know. And then I cross-examine. And just as if I was in front of the jury. And then I'm done. I'm not really there to find out all of his opinions and everything else. I'm there to cross-examine him. I'm creating the video for the trial. And I don't want to put other stuff in there that, that is going to bore the jury to death. Right? So if you start with the end in mind that the purpose of this deposition is to play it to the jury and stay with that, you get a much better deposition. 
The other thing is, is you depose my expert, chances are I'm going to spend two hours deposing. You know, I mean, you know the old, the old saw that you don't want to tell them anything, that you don't want to give them anything. That, right. Uh, when has that ever happened, right? <laughs> when is it that they ever learned something in the question you asked in a deposition they didn't already know, right, or, or found some great advantage? No, I want to take, I, I, especially if it's a recipient doctor, you know, a treating doctor, I want to get his testimony now. How's it going to play in the jury? The other thing I want to do is if it's a witness for us, I want to take it. I don't want the other side to take it because that sets the frame, the tone, you know. I want his best foot out there to begin with because I want to be able to play it to the jury. Uh, and if you start looking at trials that way, it's a different different result. And what's the logic of, you know, when do you... Let's say you have a witness you could bring live or you could do video. Let's say it's the neighbor, for example. Well, you almost have to bring them, okay. right? But now he's got a depot of what I want it to be, yeah. <laughs> right? Instead of what he's going to have to get around. Okay. You know what I mean? It, it's a much better springboard for him to go. But do you ever use video when the witness could come live? Well, how do you do that? Okay, well, I guess unless different states have different rules. Texas, it, we can. I guess okay. uh, we, we're allowed to use... We need unavailability unless okay. it's an expert okay, or yeah. by stipulation. Yeah, no, we are allowed to uh, use a deposition for any purpose. We can do that at the de- of a party, okay, but not a witness. Okay, no, we. Wow, that's great. That's great. The uh, and you know it goes faster. Uh, jurors are bored to death half the time. Yeah, we're finding the shorter the trial, trial the bigger the verdict. Really, we'll return to part two of this podcast in just a moment. Each year, the law firm of Cowan Rodriguez Peacock pays millions of dollars in co-counsel fees to attorneys nationwide. Are you an attorney with a catastrophic injury or wrongful death case you'd like to discuss with host Michael Cowan? If so, you can reach Michael by calling 210-941-1301 or send an email to michael at cowanlaw.com. We now return to the rest of this episode of Trial Lawyer Nation. What are some other things you've, you've learned that have helped you in trial? Well, the latest thing we've been working on the last couple of years is one time I was interviewing uh, Robert Sapolsky, who's a primate bi- uh, neurobiologist out of Berkeley, one of the smartest people I've ever talked to. I mean, I've read his books, and I've heard, I've, uh, his latest book is Behave, Humans at Their Best and at Their Worst. You know? uh, and so, you know, I, I was just thrilled that I got to interview him, and uh so we're talking about all kinds of stuff that have just a tangential uh, application. You know? But finally I said, okay, well, tell me some stuff lawyers could use, you know, which was the purpose of it. And he said, well, first of all, why are you always trying to find emotional, sympathetic jurors? You know, he goes, empathetic people don't act. Chances are they're not even going to call 911. <laughs> <laughs> They're going to be very upset. They're going to emote, but they don't act. Yeah. And that got me thinking about a few things. And then he said, and why would you want to make jurors cry? And why would you want to make jurors angry? Because when you do that, 
they feel bad. Right? Uh, and when people feel bad, what do they do? They go play with somebody else, <laughs> right? They turn away from you. And in a trial setting, they turn to the other side because you are making them feel bad. So that goes against all we've learned, doesn't it? Yeah, absolutely. You know? And so, But the last few trials, that's what I've been looking for. And I presented to them very... And, and you know, the Dalai Lama uh, has a saying that in the face of anger, justice evaporates. Uh, and I think that's true. I think that's true. I think that when you start playing with the anger emotion with the jury... It could go against you just as well as it could go for you. Uh, I find that just by presenting it uh, and, and giving them the rules and showing them why the rules say this is what you compensate for and presented it, present it in a cogent way, you get it. I also find, you know, we use a lot of facial expression. Uh, we were doing a lot of work with... Uh, the, the computer can now read facial expressions and chart it out for you and all. And all of the, the work we did on it demonstrated to us that in the closing, if we were joyful, if we had the jury joyful, much bigger awards. Really? Yeah. Now, there are times you want them sad and angry. Don't, don't get me wrong. But you want those emotions from the witnesses. When you have witnesses on the, on the stand, you don't want them mirroring you for those emotions. You know? And, and it, for years, I mean, I can make anybody cry, you know, I, I, because I'm very uh, emotional. I, I have very poor, emo- I have emotional abilities, you know, and you will mirror me. And, uh, you know, I, and I used to, you know, have jurors crying, but they didn't do what I wanted them to. Why was that? Now I know why it was. And it's a different result. I don't want to be responsible for those emotions. Oh, okay. In the closing or the opening. Those emotions will come out from witnesses and the facts that they hear. Right? But I don't want to be the percipient cause of it. See the difference? So the, like, say the defendant's but what I also what he also said, and what I believe Sapolsky said, you don't want empathetic people, you want detachment. You know you you are going to do better with people who are detached. And when you look at the jury instructions and all of the things they have to compensate you for, yeah, that is what we want. Because each one of those things has a price tag, and then there's the temporal aspect that it's multiplied by. How much time do they have these things been lost? You know? And, you know, I categorize them all, I have nice columns for them, you know, and there it is. And if you follow the rules, you will look at each and every one of these things. And, and I talked about it at the very beginning when we do jury selection, is what are the diamonds in your life? What makes you happy? What, what makes you excited about getting up in the morning? You know, what are those things? And usually it's your children and your family and the things you do with your family. It's the experiences you have. You know, that, that really is what satisfaction, life satisfaction comes from, is the experiences. And so I catalog all of those experiences they'll never have. 
Are you yeah. the one that came up with the diamonds thing? I, yeah. I heard it, from, I think Bruce Phillips told me he learned it from you, and I've been yeah. using it in my trials, and so thank you. It yeah. really works, doesn't it? It really works, and it really... Uh, Want me to do it? What? Want me to do it? I'd love for you to do it, yeah. So you talk to them in jury selection about what are the diamonds in there. And, uh, you know, diamonds, it, it's those priceless moments, you know? Remember the, the commercial, master charge commercial with... What's priceless? What's priceless in your life? You know, and then I, I learn what those things are. And then in closing, it's and and I also say it in Boy Dyer now, in this this trial, we're going to be asking you to compensate them for the diamonds in their life that were taken away. Now, and if you were to imagine it being a bag of diamonds that the defendant stole and then lost forever, threw in the river lost it. You wouldn't give them a discount, you would, but it would also be a very easy trial. You'd take each diamond, how much did it weigh, what was its clarity, what was its value, and you add them up. And if it's $300 million, it's $300 million. Nobody's going to discount. You wouldn't discount it, would you? No. Would you add more because you were sympathetic? No. It's what it is, right? This case is like that except it's not going to be as easy to value each one of the diamonds in their life that has been taken. Mm -hmm. And, you know, in the closing, all the pictures of diamonds, and, you know, it's a good metaphor. It's, it's really an accurate metaphor of what they're doing. One thing I've really liked about it is that, you know, the defense likes to kind of poo-poo the testimony about the the family relationships, about the things they, you know, they love to do, they can't do anymore, and about our friends and family and neighbor witnesses. But when early on in Vordire, people were telling us that these are the most important things in their own lives, then when the defense tries to discount them, it's kind of a slap in their face. Same yeah, thing. it really is. It really is. And, you know, by that time, I, I don't see them doing that. Yeah, I mean, by that time, that the defense is all over the board. They don't know yeah. what hit them. You know, it's not the trial they were expecting. But again, I'd prefer to have a much more experienced lawyer than an inexperienced lawyer because they give me the stuff to work with. You know? Also, you don't want to become Goliath. You don't want to be the... I mean, if you're so much better than the other side, it can, I think it can be a disadvantage. I don't... I used to subscribe to that, but okay. I don't anymore. Okay. I, I think the jury is looking for credibility, but you have to remain credible. You know, I will I, I will do nothing to disrupt that credibility. I'll, I'll concede the point before that happens. You know, and, and I also frequently, if they make an objection and we're arguing, and I realize they're right, I will say no, they're right. I withdraw it. I'm sorry. Uh, and. Uh, but, you know, the other thing I've learned is I've learned the evidence code, and I know the numbers. I know the section to cite. I don't say hearsay. I say section 1200 hearsay. You know, I have the section. Uh-huh. Uh, and the reason I do that is not for the judge, but for the jury. You know, I'm the credible source here. You know, I have to be the most knowledgeable person in that room. Uh, and, you know, you stay out of the fights with the other side. You know, I just stay out of them. It, uh, uh, and the other thing I do is, the only time I ever really get angry is when the other side will demean the court. If they're demeaning to the court, 
then I'm up, you know. And, and the reason for that is because one of the things I argue is just how important what we do in this house is. And you don't, the judge can be wrong, you know, and we should be firm in our argument, but never demeaning. What's an example of like someone demeaning the court? Well, you know, they do it with tone. They'll they'll do it. They, they, they do it a thousand different ways. Just don't you ever do it. I always stand up when I talk to the court. Everybody in my team stands up when they talk to the court. You know, it it's always your honor. It's you know, uh, it. Uh, I'm trying to think of the many times it's happened when I've seen them demean the court. You know, but. But it's, it, it, I'm the one objecting to it. Not because I, and I, th- I think the jury slowly realizes that we're very aware of our roles and they mean something to us. So that when I talk about what their role is, it has more significance. What's your philosophy for case selection then? I mean, the, give yourself the where you feel comfortable going up there and, and you can credibly argue for the client. The, they don't let me select the cases here. Yeah, I mean, a, we've got a lot of lawyers. Because I say yes way too often. The, the, you know, it's the Warren Buffett, uh, Charlie Munger. If it's not all there, don't invest. We, we look at cases as investments, you know. Uh, we don't look them, look at them as long shots, and, but you know every now and then I'll take a long shot because I just enjoy the issue, or I, I'm looking to change some social, you know, thing about our society, and and I'll take those. But I don't take those for money. Right. I mean, if I do, I do. But I mean, if I win, fine. I don't want you to think that I'm, you know, wearing a uh, flying around here in angel's wings because I'm not. But I. Uh, but I'm very clear as to what my purpose is, you know. And then, you know, the one thing you always want to remember, it's, you know who's going to, I asked this of uh, Kahneman, 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 I never know how to pronounce his name. Uh, he's the guy who won the, uh, the Nobel for economics. Okay. And he's a psychologist, and it was for behavioral economics. And so we're interviewing him and, and uh, asked him, what, What's the one advice you can give lawyers? He goes, all this cognitive science stuff is great. It's really fascinating. It's all valid. But at the end of the day, the simplest case wins. And it will always win. And it's because of how we have, you know, two ways of thinking. Fast and slow, he wrote the book. Uh, And cases are so complex that you have to simplify it. And... And that was a, an awakening for me because you know I, I can, I'm down to the neuroplasticity of the of the sp- nerves in the spinal cord, you know. Right. <laughs> I, and I I, I I I just love this stuff so much, but the jury's not. You know, they want a simple, causative explanation. And you know, the other thing lawyers need to know is causation, and not in a legal sense, but in a in a scientific sense, in a philosophical sense, and there's books on causation. What does causation really mean? You know, 
and it, and you'll always end up with a, a abstract metaphor. And the metaphor lawyers can pretty much rely on is the pool table. Okay. That's why you always focus on the defense first. Because whoever you focus on first, that's your cue ball. And that's the causative agent. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then you're just lining up the, this ball, hit this ball, hit this ball, hit this ball, and don't leave any out, but make it simple. Mm-hmm. Uh, I think we can... The complexity is definitely the friend of the defense. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And our role is to just simplify it. You know, like cross-examining doctors, it becomes so easy, you know, on the, the defense doctors. Because the role they're playing in the case is so... Uh, it's, it, it's so contrary to the role of a doctor. You know, a doctor's there to help you get better, not to hurt you. You know, and then you just go to all, through all the things that he, a real doctor would do that he was unable to do. You don't have to be mean to him, you know, and all the things he doesn't know. And, you know, we'll list all the witnesses in the case. Do you, so do you know who Billy Smith is? No. Well, do you know who... You know, yeah. <laughs> you want to you really demonstrate what he doesn't know. You know? Uh, and, you know, we always like to do it visually. We always put the picture of every doctor that is found, you know, that, on both sides. And when you match them up, the defense cannot win. Because they're only allowed so many doctors. Yeah. It, it, uh, uh, I've, I've often said that as more and more lawyers understand and embrace cognitive science, this system will collapse because it's no longer sustainable. And that it, it used to, people used to think that it favored the defense. Well, if you don't understand the cognitive science behind it, it does. But once you do, it is very hard for the defense to prevail. Extremely hard. Uh, and as it should be, but at the same time, it's not sustainable. It's amazing. It seems like what you're saying is just uh, help people follow the law. <laughs> <laughs> Essentially. Follow the rules. Uh, but, I mean, the role of the lawyer is, is very difficult. I mean, it takes a lot of time to memorize that evidence code. And it's something I do every single day. You know? uh, and, you know, we prepare for, for trials with mind maps, not with outlines. You know? What are mind maps? You know, go onto the Internet, type in mind map, and you get a hundred different. The one I like the best right now is called iMindMap, and it's an Apple product, but it also works on Microsoft. Uh, and it's just how you organize it. It's circular as opposed to linear, and, you know, and it branches out. I, I'm sure you've seen them. Yeah. You know? uh, but we use that for every witness and for... All kinds of things, you know. The, the story that we're going to tell is mind mapped first because you can move things around very quickly and easily. Uh, and you know, I have a lot of fun in trials, and, and so I'll take my mind map and I'll hand it to the defense lawyer. And I'll go, you want to see what I'm going to ask him? <laughs> <laughs> and it's and it'll have pictures instead of words, or because you can you you remember pictures better, and. Uh, 
And the other thing we do is, you know, whatever cases, case citations that we know we'll be arguing, we memorize the site. Now, that seems really hard. How can anybody do that? Well, it's really easy, you know. You say it's 84 Calab 4th 186. That's a case I use a lot. You know? So you put the 8 over here in juror number 1, and you put the 4 on juror number 6. I mean, and you place it around the courtroom. And so I can read it back to the court just by, because I used, you know, uh, the visuals uh -huh. to do that. Um, the, uh, but that gives you credibility, both with the court and with the jury. You know? Do you use a lot of visuals in trial? As, if, if I can't put it in a visual, I don't use the, the fact. Because I know they're not going to remember it. Right. I know they're not going to believe it. You know, uh, yeah. It, it, a lot of work goes into finding the visual to represent what we're telling them. Uh, and, and, you know, the interesting thing in the last few trials, what has happened is we have some very good support people now. And they're, you know, the different vendors. And they will do these recreations of the surgery. And you've seen them at yeah. the you know. And they're expensive, but if you know you got a big case, they're really, really worth it. And then we also have still, you know, posters of it. And but the you know with all the courtroom technology now, you can show run the movie of the surgery and the different things that happened. And you know the uh, and we did this trial, and the, the verdict was in fifty some million dollars. And we realized we never put in any medical record. We really? never showed them a medical record. Yeah. Uh, never showed the jury one. The, uh, you know, the defense, I think, might have put some in. But it was, again, the simplification. Who did they believe? This paid whore over here? Or what they saw on the screen? You know? Yeah. You believe what you see whether you want to or not. So you want to be very careful of the visuals they use. Uh, but yeah, I would say a, a significant part of the investment is just the visuals we use in trial. One thing that I've learned is that I've been trying to get better at that, and it's still, um, I'm still early in the learning curve. Uh, but when I'm trying to create a visual for every point I'm making, it really points out where you have a gap that you need to fill. Right. right. Uh, and, I mean, you know, I, I say that, but obviously there's some things that are just words. Right. You know, but not too many. It, uh, the jury will attach to the visual. And you, and you want to be able to pull those visuals back in closing when you tell them the story. That's why we always have pictures of every witness. Do not leave that deposition without getting their picture. Pull up your phone, take their picture, and let them whine all they want about it. You got it. You know? Because when I open and when I close, whenever I talk about what they're going to say, that picture's up on that screen. You know? Because without it, it's just words. Yeah. You know? They, they can't, can't really relate to it. Yeah, I really like the picture with the quote from the witness. And yeah, yeah. Bang, 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 bang. Yeah. The, uh, yeah. So I wanted to ask you about a recent verdict, if that's all right. Sure. So you guys had a, uh, a f 
41 million dollar verdict or 41 million plus verdict on a well it was 41 six but yeah who's counting <laughs> <laughs> on uh, a case that doesn't have what I'd say the classic ingredients are you didn't have a big bad company on the other side you didn't have a huge wage earner uh, can you tell us about that case and some of the things you think you know, help you get your client what he deserved in that case? Well, normally we will, we waive loss of income. Okay. And and unless, you know, we're in the close to, to seven figures, we waive lost uh, past medical. You know, not always, but usually. Because those things drive the verdict down. And that, that's, that's where the, the jury will start, is with that objective figure, that objective number. I don't want them starting there. I want them starting in tens of millions and work down. Like the one they gave us the, the 40 mil, 41 million on, you know, I asked for 112, I think. Yeah. Uh, and it was a super conservative jury. And, it, you know, it, it, the demographics of that jury is what we're taught we don't want. And that's pretty accurate. I didn't want them. <laughs> that's the jury I got. So here we have a, a, he's in his early 20s. He was about 18 at the time of the crash. And he's mentally challenged. And he, uh, you know, he's in an assisted work environment. You know, uh, and his girlfriend is mentally challenged. And she's in a similar environment. And, but a delightful couple, I mean, you know, and articulate. Uh, but they both had an IQ of about 70, you know, that range. Uh, and uh, he had scoliosis, and so he had a rod in his back, and his neck snapped in, in a T-bone accident. He was uh, a quadriplegic, and it was just sad. But, it, you know, and I, in the closing, I talked to the jury about how he's changed our family because he's been to the house and, you know, they heard uh-huh. about the barbecue and stuff like that. And uh, because I, I never paid much attention to people who were mental, m- mentally challenged. Yeah. I just stayed away from them, you know. And here's this delightful young man that we just love. I mean, he's adorable and he's... he's he, he added so much to us, you know, uh, and that's why it has to be genuine, you know, they have to feel that, and yeah, he's entitled to every bit of a, of a useful life as you and I are, you know, and they took it, and so, you know, but it wasn't, uh, you know, I didn't go after the defendant, I, I didn't need anyone angry. And that, that's why I think, you know, maybe this whole idea of the reptile, we're not reptiles. Yeah. Now, it, the reptile has a lot to say. Don't get me wrong. I think those guys are, are, are good at what they do. But I think it scratches the surface in many respects. Well, and in that case, from what you're telling me, you had a, a fairly delightful defendant, too. I mean, she was not a bad person. Nice lady. You know, in her early 20s, you know... I mean, I couldn't get it in front of the jury because they admitted liability, but it was pretty clear she was texting at the time. Uh, but the jury didn't know about that. The jury never heard that. Uh, and, 
I was tempted to you. You know, she was inattentive. (laughs) And I'm taking my thumbs as if I'm texting. (laughs) But I, I found over the years tricks like that backfire. And I really can't be genuine and and uh, incredible if I engage in tricks, it, you know. And so I I avoid them like the plague. And, and my inclination is to use them. So I have people that are cautioning me. No, that's a trick. Don't do it. Uh-huh. You know. Uh, and I didn't need it. I didn't need it. I, it was look. These are the rules. The rules say that accountability means this. Now, and for whatever you want to take away from this equation, that's how unaccountable we're saying she can be. You know? And they knew she wasn't going to pay it. I mean, they're not stupid. Right. You know, in fact, somebody said in Boydier, Boydier said, how is she going to afford that? And somebody else laughed. <laughs> and I, I said, I'm not allowed to tell you. Right. <laughs> And then I, if I want insurance in the case, sometimes I don't, but if I want insurance in the case, uh, like in this, normally I, I'm afraid that the insurance is that they will internalize it and say, well, I only have 100000 or you know, something like that. But in this case, they were trying to play, you know, the poor, you know, nice defendant. And so... You know, we had to talk about the jury instruction that says you shall not consider insurance. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> the best way for some to get somebody to consider something is tell them not to. <laughs> you know? and, and in that case, I did do that in the closing, just in case anybody had any doubts. Yeah. Uh, How do you manage your life to have the time to spend with the clients and witnesses to spend learning getting better, and in your case, to be the mayor of a town, to see your children, to see grandchildren, uh, and still sleep at night. And keep in mind, the most important thing I do is sleep. And the most important thing you do is sleep. And this whole idea of working long hours into the night, you're an idiot if that's what you're doing. Because it leads to dementia, it leads to to poor performance the next day. It lead, I mean, the, the, the host of illnesses that come from lack of sleep. And so I strive very hard to, to get seven to eight hours a, a night because the most important thing I do in that 24 hours is sleep. And even during trial? Even during trial, right. Well, the, be, the best way to be able to sleep during trial is to prepare for the trial beforehand. <laughs> But at, this, at the same time, I've really been blessed with, with a wonderful family and wonderful partners and, and a wonderful firm. And I don't go into trial alone. I don't go in with one person. You know, you want a $50 million verdict? We had six lawyers on that case, you know. And there were lawyers working all night long, but they weren't the ones in the courtroom. You know, it, it's, a, it's a full commitment of the firm. You know, to to winning that case, uh, but we're very aware of who's doing what. You know, uh, in one trial, I had the lawyer. You know, I get up at four o'clock in the morning, and that's when I study and do all this cognitive science stuff. And in trial, I'm getting ready. You know, and uh, so at, at five a.m., he he comes to my hotel room. Who's going to do the closing? 
and one look at him. I knew he hadn't slept at all. Yeah. And I said, you haven't slept, have you? And he said, no. And I go, you're not doing the closing. And so I had three hours to get ready for the closing <laughs> and, and did. Because you, you're not going to connect unless you've had that sleep. You know, you, you can't be fighting. Uh, I mean, sleep deprivation is the same. I wouldn't let him go, go argue a drunk, would yeah. I? And we all know the studies about that. Nothing else, nothing's different. You know, one, one of the biggest advantages I have is I don't drink. Usually the defense lawyer does. The, the, and the moment you pick up that drink at night, your cognitive functioning has ceased. You know, you're not transferring information to your hippocampus and to your long-term memory when, when that occurs. Uh, that's a huge advantage I have. Yeah. You know? Trial Lawyer Nation is proud to partner with Trial Guides, leader in continuing education for civil plaintiff and criminal defense trial lawyers, with books, DVDs, CLEs, live webinars, and more. Visit trialguides.com and use code TLN19 at checkout to receive our exclusive podcast discount on any Trial Guides products. That's TLN for Trial Lawyer Nation and the number 19. Discount expires August 31st, 2019. And now, back to the show. But, you know, God gave us all a certain amount of alcohol to drink in our life, and I just happened to drink all <laughs> mine by the time I was 25. <laughs> and kept drinking till I was 36. Uh, the, uh, but in answer, how do I have time for all of it? I, I surround myself with very smart people. Uh, who work really hard, who I love. That's know? awesome. If I don't love them, I get rid of them. <laughs> you know? That's awesome. That's one of our challenges is we're at a point where we either have to further restrict the cases we're taking or hire another lawyer. But I love the people I work with so much and the way they all get along with each other and that I'm just afraid to add anybody else. Yeah. Uh, and you so do give blessed. that, and you do give that up. Like, there, there's people here I don't know their name, and that you know I never thought we'd be that big. But also, you know, lawyers do lawyer stuff, and that isn't very much stuff <laughs> that goes on in this place. Yeah, yeah. We we recruit claims adjusters from the insurance industry. We recruit all kinds of people. Uh, we're now testing for their, their emotional intelligence. Uh, and uh, But there's really hard, people want to work here, and, and if you get past the first six months, you, you might be here your whole life, like some of them have been. That's great. Uh, but, it, uh, but there's very stringent rules. If, you're, if, you, if you start bad-mouthing a co-employee, you get one warning. The next time, Somebody shows up in your office with a box, and you you have to fill it and leave. Wow! Yeah, you know, we we will not tolerate uh, undermining your employee. You know the people you work with because this is where we live. This is where I live. I'm not living in a toxic environment. You know, I grew up a child that way. I'm I'm done with it. <laughs> you know? So how did you get the courage to create and enforce such a rule? I've got a really strong wife, okay, and it's her rule. <laughs> okay, that's awesome. <laughs> and you know, it, 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 I've been blessed with just this 
I've got a wonderful wife. She's incredibly bright. She's not a lawyer, and she runs everything that's not lawyer stuff. You know? uh, and uh, she's freed me up to do like I don't I don't do payroll. I don't do personnel. I don't do human relay. I don't even know what those things are half the time. I don't even know which bank we use. You yeah. know? That so that frees me up to really focus on what I love doing, which is learning, trying cases, and you know, improving the welfare of the people in the city. You also do a lot of teaching with your lawyers here. Yes. yes. Tell us a little bit about what you do there. Teaching them how to do it. Yeah. yeah. Well, you know, there, if you want to rise up in this this firm, you have to do a lot of independent study of how to persuade people, and you have to then come in and teach the other lawyers how to do that. What little We bring other people in to, to do seminars for the firm. The uh, uh, Anything that could improve our ability to persuade and to embrace the client, you know, we, we're actively engaged in it. Uh, you know, every now and then it's little things like how do you introduce yourself to somebody at a party and shake their hand? How do you do that? You know, we practice that. Oh wow! Everything we do, we practice. You know, I mean, as you came in, you saw the courtroom we built. We right. have a courtroom there. We practice and practice and practice, and you know, nothing is to, left to chance. Uh, nothing. You know. Now, a lot of people think that's too scripted. Okay. I don't care what you think. <laughs> this works for us. Yeah. You know. Uh, the uh, well, I've never heard of, uh, let's say, in a Broadway show, they say, "Well, we can't rehearse too much because we don't want the show to look scripted." Right. Right. It's <laughs> <laughs> exactly true. And uh, one of my realizations it was with the, I was working with Josh Carton once, and I realized that I would, as a child, I had done more rehearsing for a community theater thing when we're uh, 10 and under that only the parents would go to than I had for a trial which Isn't I was asking true? for millions of dollars yeah that's right and how backwards that was and yeah. how you know, my mom did community theater and she would go to rehearsal after rehearsal yeah. rehearsal with the show they're doing just for the joy of doing it and here I'm supposed to be a professional doing this for a living and I'm going to go you know, maybe read it over once that's not right the client deserves better than that we get really caught up in the things that don't matter and it's not because we're getting bogged down in it. It's because we're comfortable with it. Uh, now, a master class is a thing you can take on the Internet. Yeah. You know, right? So 100 bucks, you can take all these classes from great performers. One of them was saying that uh, you go in to rehearse a play. You know, you've got a play going on. The, screen, the script, what do you call them? A screenwriter? Yeah. yeah. Who writes a playwright? Play? A playwright. Right. So you go in and right away they start talking about, well, let's develop the backstory. You know, what's the backstory of these characters? He goes, bullshit. There <laughs> is no backstory. They're characters in a play. The reason you want to talk about their backstory is because you're afraid to get on your feet and fail. Yep. And you will fail. That's the purpose of rehearsal. It's the purpose of, of, of practicing anything. If you aren't going to look like an idiot when you do it, you're not pushing hard enough. You know, what I, what I always do is I always get way out there, and then I dial it back in. You know? But that's what practice is. But it's the, the, 
the ability to bear the failure. You know, and one of the mistakes I make is, you know, sometimes this one time we were actually got the federal courtroom to practice it. Uh-huh. Right? And, and I'm not quite clear about how that came down, but next thing I know, I'm, just ask. I mean, it's amazing. And they're doing that, and the clients there, and I got fired. Yeah. Wow. Because I was so bad. <laughs> well, of course I was bad. You know, we're here practicing. <laughs> I didn't know I was here auditioning. Yeah. <laughs> you know, there's a difference. And so I've learned never to have the client there. Yeah. Yeah. Do you ever take the the client or witnesses into an empty courtroom? Yeah. Yeah, I want them comfortable. I want them sitting where they're going to sit. And if the clerk will let me, I have them sit in the jury box and, you know, get comfortable with it. The... Uh, and I always do that, is I'll sit in the juror's chair, see what they can see, and all that. Yeah. The, uh, but, yeah, if you're not practicing, if you're looking for the backstory, you're just afraid. And we're supposed to be afraid. There's nothing wrong with being afraid. What's wrong is when you don't recognize it and do it anyway. You know? Yeah, I find that when I, what I end up doing is I'll be marking my own exhibits or messing with a notebook or, you know, yeah. Uh, yeah. researching case law or something that other than doing what I... Things I could have someone else do much right. more productively. Uh, I have found that if I go in with an opening prepared, before I do anything else, you know, uh, before motions and limiting, if I have that opening prepared, I'm in charge the rest of the trial. Yeah. yeah I will own the room the rest of the trial. If I don't have that prepared, I mean in really prepared, I won't. I will. I will. I will falter, and, and, and undoubtedly, I will falter. Uh, it, it just gives you that confidence, you know. Uh-huh. Like you're picking the jury, and you're afraid you're not ready for the opening. You, you don't want to be there. Yeah. You know, if you if you have the opening prepared, and you're picking the jury, you got a pretty good idea what we should be talking about. Right? You told me before we that we talked a little bit before we started recording that you're giving a talk on. Things we think are the right thing to do, but don't make a lot of sense. Well, one of them is what I've already talked about: is is you don't want empathetic jurors, you right? Want detached jurors. You don't want them angry. You don't want them angry or sad in the in the closing. You want happy juries. You know, and what we found is that's why it's so important to talk to them about how much you're going to ask in the front end, because what we saw on what we save it for closing. It, it will make them frightened or angry. And both of those emotions are because they're the awareness that this could happen to me. There's a yeah. shock value to it. Like, you know, not value, but a shock effect. So put it out there early. You know, you don't want that back here. Uh, but, you know, we now have the capability of doing a focus group, filming it, and knowing what they're feeling. Not what they say they feel but what they actually feel at the moment they feel it. And the computer can give us a printout and a dashboard of everything that went on. Uh, that, that's incredible science. That is. You know, and it, and it, it's revamped how we present our cases. You know? Uh, the, uh, you know, I, I used to think jurors wanted to see the toughest dog on the, toughest junk, junkyard dog on the block, right? And that's not what they want. Uh, and that's really not who I am. Uh, and 
you know, I've, I've really learned to embrace my uh, my frailty. I have a lot of frailties, you know, mm-hmm. and and I'm not afraid to show them. Uh, I mean, this this is a wonderful job. At the end of the day, I'm supposed to win. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, but we can always find a way to lose if we. <laughs> well, you know, it. it to the extent that if you don't have the skill set and a command of the facts and the witnesses to present them, it is stacked against us. But it is our burden. You know? The other thing is, thank God this isn't easy. You know? uh, if it was easy, everybody would be rich. Yeah. You know? Now, I wouldn't mind if everybody was rich, but that isn't really what happens, is it? Yeah. So what are some skill sets you think that we lawyers need to learn? Well, you know, there's elementary stuff in cognitive science arena that, you know, is unknown to lawyers or, or not very well, we're not very conversant with it. And one of those is mirroring, you know, we have mirror cells in our brain and that's how we socialize and, you know, people who have uh, limited mirroring cells are autistic or they're on the spectrum, you know. Uh, the... Uh, so you want to read about mirroring, just what is mirroring? What is mirroring? It's like how we uh, learn affiliation with each other is you'll move, then I'll move. You'll adopt a posture, I'll adopt that posture. You know, we mirror each other, you know? Yeah. Uh, uh, and in a state of nature, that's how we tell each other we're on our this team. We're not on that team. You know, it, It's how we develop affiliation. And so once you learn that and practice and practice and practice it so you do it second nature, you know, you mirror the judge, mirror the jurors, mirror, you know, and you can also see who's leading the pack uh, because the rest of the juror, jurors will mirror that person. You know? uh, the, what, I, what I want is affiliation with the jury more than anything. Uh, so mirroring is certainly one of the skill sets that, that you have to learn. And voice is so important. And, uh, you know, I have, uh, I have some, some disabilities, and so one of them is, is I'll wear a, a lavalier mic in the trial because I have to cognitive, cognitively always be aware of how much energy is coming out of my voice and because otherwise you won't hear me. Oh, wow. you know, and that was due to a brain injury I had, and and I just have to be aware of that. But so now I wear a lavalier mic, but look at the range that gives me. <laughs> you know, I can boom and I can whisper and I, in a huge range. Uh, but voice is incredibly important. the The one thing I've been working on my whole life and I still haven't mastered is to slow down that voice. It, you have to talk slow. You know, that's my struggle. <laughs> yeah. So I gave a speech, and, and for the first time, my wife gave me an A plus on the speech, and it was because of the the speed of it and the rhythm of it, and the voice was was perfect. So I, I learned to slow down the hard way because I was trying a rear end collision trucking case in the best venue in the state of Texas, and I thought as a young lawyer it was going to be my first. Get on the map, hit. Right. And the jury's deliberating, and the defense lawyer thinks I've won. I think I've won. Yeah. The bailiff thinks I've won, and the court reporter said, You're going to lose. I'm like, 
How dare you tell me I'm going to lose? You're going to lose. He goes, you talk too fast. They couldn't understand you. You're going to lose. And they came back with, yeah. uh, I lost. Also, <laughs> also when, we're, when we're lying, we tend to speed up. You know, it's one of those signals of trust. Uh-huh. And, you know, if, if I could, if, if the one thing I would really like to master before I'm done is that voice, uh, is getting the, the tempo of the voice down. Uh, yeah, but, you know, they're discrete skills. If you're going to learn a dance, you learn it one step at a time. So what are the steps to this dance? You know, and you have to have them all in your quiver. And it's voice, it's when to look at something, where to look. If I'm in a, in a confrontation with the judge, stay out of eye contact. I'm always looking at, if the witness, you know, I have some imaginary or imaginary jury, or, and I can say whatever I want. I can be as loud and as obnoxious as I want, if that's what I want to do. But never in eye contact. Never. Because that's a challenge to him? That's relationship. And now I'm damaging the relationship. You know, and I've also learned to do that in my personal life. You know, uh, I always take it to a third point if I'm angry about something. You know? Like with your kids, this report card is crap. You know? This report card's crap, not you. Right. You know, see the difference? But I don't engage in eye contact when I'm doing that. You know? Stuff like that you need to know. You know, when to be in eye contact with the jury and when not to be, you know, is vitally important. Uh, but those are discrete steps that you you have to master, and it, it's a process, and it takes a long time. And what are some of the things we can do to learn to do those things, to, to get those skills? Read a lot of books. <laughs> go to a lot of seminars. Uh, like we have this, uh, we did. There's this book on um, what was it? Never split the difference, and it's by an FBI hostage negotiator. And we brought him in and had him teach the lawyers. And one of the things he would teach is, uh, what was your question? How how where do we go to learn these things? These things, the skills. The that was one of them. Right. To repeat the last thing you <laughs> said, the last word you said, without you knowing, I did it. Uh, to just do it naturally. And you will keep talking. Uh, it's just the way we are. Uh, another way to do it is just raise your eyebrows and hold it up, and they'll talk. But you, a lot of our job is getting people to talk to us, right? Jurors, get them to talk to us. How do you do that? Uh, you know, one of the things people should read is uh, Start With the Why. Start With the Why? Yeah, and that's by Simon Sinek. Uh, we structure all of our arguments. We, what happened, how it happened, and why this is important. Isn't that how we do it? Isn't that how you do your closing? He says, turn it upside down. Always start with the why. Why is this important? Right? How did this happen? What happened? You know, it, when you start looking at why, how, what, you're much more persuasive. Yeah. yeah, and and we do that now, you know. Uh, the uh, and it's hard. It's hard to take sixty years of, of learning how to do something and and flip it. Right? 
The other thing lawyers need to do is learn how to answer a question. And you know how you answer a question? How? You answer it. <laughs> <laughs> the, the, uh, there's a book, uh, In the Line of Fire, uh, and it's about how to answer questions. And they've taken the presidential debates and used that as an example. And the first thing you do is make certain you understand the question. So you repeat some of it back to them. What are the columns of the question that hold the question up? Right? And then answer it. And if, you know, if the judge is asking you, uh, this actually happened. We have the Porter Ranch case where we represent 9,000 homeowners because this gas well blew up, you know, and, and uh, for four months these people were breathing this poison. Uh. And they lied to him every day about what was in that gas and lied to him every day saying it was harmless, you know, knowing that it was, we've had people die as a result of that, that gas leak. And uh, so the first day, you know, you have this, what do you call it, when you got mass torts, you know, all the lawyers are there and, and the judge and the defendant and you're trying to figure out how to manage this case. And the judge says to the defendant, the defense, how can can you articulate to me a defense to the nuisance claim? And blah 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 blah. Can you articulate what your defense is? <laughs> and then finally he goes, this is the third time. Do you have a defense to the nuisance claim? Blah 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 blah. And the judge just you know, is furious. And he goes, I guess you're just not going to answer me, are you? Yeah. That was how he started his relationship with the judge. Well, how much better to say, no, I can't, Your Honor, not not right now, And I, but we'll certainly look at that, and next time I hope to have an answer for you. That's interesting. When I was, uh, my first job out of law school, I was a law clerk for an appellate mm -hmm. judge. And so I got to not only watch, I think, 120 oral arguments, but yeah. I also, because we had read the, either written or read the other clerk's bench memos, I knew what the issues the judges cared about and kind of where they stood before. Right, right. And of the 120 oral arguments I saw, 119 did not change any judge's position on any issue. Uh, and I consistently saw the judge would ask a question about the issue that was important to the judges and the lawyer would dodge it and go back to the pre-prepared script and talk about what the lawyer thought was important. Right. And the right. only oral argument I saw that made a difference, uh, the man got up and said, uh, I have a prepared presentation, but I know that the court has read the briefs and uh, studied the issues, so before I talk about what I think is important, are there any questions the court would like me to address? And they spent the 20 minutes asking him questions, and he listened to and answered every question, and he's the only one that persuaded a judge to change his mind. In the year I was there. Yeah, I think that's it's critical, you know. Now the odds are still against you. Yeah, you know, because once we adopt a position, it's very hard for us to come off it as human beings. the The other other thing, there's a course from the University of Michigan on how to change people off a position, and the way to do it is to first start out with it's understandable why they reach this position, and, not but, but and, when you consider these facts, there's a different result. You see what I mean? Yeah. It, it, rather than just saying they're full of, you know, that it, 
And Justice Roberts has talked about that. He says, by the time the case is in front of the Supreme Court, it's not an easy issue. Right. (laughs) So at least acknowledge the other side's position. And, And so, you know, we work very hard at acknowledging their position first and then reversing it. I think that's one of our big political problems we have is that there is just a demonization of yeah. half the country by the other half of the country and you know not giving any credence to the other side's position and you know attributing bad motives behind the other side's yes. position and and it makes it impossible to ever bridge a gap unless somebody first acknowledges that hey your position while I may not agree with it is is can be supported by logic and that you have a good heart and you're coming from a good place and it, you know, until you can do that, I think right. it's really hard to. Joe, Joe Biden said it when he ran for when he was running for vice president uh, against Palin. Remember? Yeah. The Palin debate. And and he tell, tells a story about how when he was early in the Senate. And I don't need to go into the story, but the gist of it was, don't ever question somebody's motives. You can question their judgment. You can question their decision making. You, you can question the facts they're relying on, but you don't know their motives. I don't even know my motives half the time, if not all the time. Yeah. You know, because if you ask me why I did something, I'll tell you what I think you want to hear, without even realizing that's what I'm doing. You know, and and I think you're right about that. It, the, whenever I start into an argument about the other side's motives, I usually lose. You know, it. If I just can remember to keep it factual, these are the facts, this is the result, you know. The, the, but lawyers, we get so wrapped up into the, you know, and I think you got to remember, it's our burden. And anything we do that makes us less persuasive is exponentially impactful. It's not their job to persuade them on anything, Yeah, you know? I mean, it, it, we have the burden. So that's why you want to stay out of those fights with the defense, because you'll start mirroring their hostility and their aggression. You know? What I like to do is try to keep the mindset that this is a puzzle we're all working on together, yeah. that we'll have a solution. You know? and, and every time I get sucked into the aggression, you know, now it's a fight where somebody's going to win or lose. That's not, I don't think that benefits me representing the victim, you know. This is a puzzle that we as a, as a courtroom are working on. And if he, want to, he wants to throw the puzzle up in the air, well, we all know what to do with that child. He has to go to timeout. Let the adults finish <laughs> this, right? I mean, isn't that really the, what we're attempting to achieve? Now, you know, it's all very well and good for me to say that. But it is harder than it is really, really, really hard. You know, it, it's harder to do that than quit taking drugs, and I know them both. <laughs> yeah, it's one thing I try to remind lawyers that you know there'll be someone really that gets under your skin, and you've been dealing with that other lawyer for a year and a half, two and a half yeah. years before you get to trial, and you're so ready to be angry at this person and to lash out, but the jurors don't have that shared common experience. They, yeah, they don't have that experience at all. And, and so they, all you're of a sudden, the asshole. Yeah. exactly, yeah. that goes and yeah. starts snapping at people. Yeah. And so just, you know, keeping that in mind, and, and it's not about 
you know, one lawyer against the other lawyer. It's, you know, we're telling our story, and I don't really care what the other side's doing. I find that same attitude to be incredibly helpful in the city, you know, as the mayor. Uh-huh. Is that we have this puzzle we're all working on together, you know, whatever the issue might be. And, you know, and I, and I invite people to help solve the puzzle and to find the pieces and to work on it. And so they have commitment to what we're doing, you know. And again, the toxic, toxic ones we put on the no-fly list. Yeah. And in the city, we actually have a no-fly list. If you're one of those people that, you know, bitch about everything and say no to everything and just want to criticize people, you're not allowed to come to the parties. If the city is putting it on, you don't get to come. If, if uh, a private person's putting it on, the mayor's not coming if you're there. Wow. <laughs> and it's amazing how many people work to get off the no-fly list and behave themselves. And that doesn't mean they, they aren't supposed to disagree with me. They are. You know, I, I only want to be right, you know, three out of five, because we can be incredibly successful with yeah. those three out of five. Uh, but, you know, I recognize two out of five is probably a harebrained idea. Well, I need people to tell me that. Although I like your no-neckties idea. <laughs> That's good science so far. Yeah. I mean, the only science in front of us says that wearing a necktie can can restrict the blood flow to your brain by 7 to 10%. Wow. Right? That's what the science tells us. Now, is it robust studies? No. You know, was the sample size pretty small? Yes, it was. But there isn't any science saying that doesn't happen. Now, sure, well, just wear a looser collar. And if I could buy a new shirt every time I gained two pounds, I would. And if somebody else had bought it for me and had it there waiting for it, but no, the chances are I'm going to be occasionally putting on a shirt that's too tight for me. So I don't wear neckties anymore. You know, and you know, I, in, in deference to the court, I wear a turtleneck instead. But you know, doesn't restrict the blood flow. Oh, and you get to do that. So far, that's awesome. Only one judge has told me don't do it again. You know, the you know they got a real problem if I want to push it. You know, there is a thing called the ADA. Uh, you I gotta see if I can get the courage to try that because I think that the tie is a shield or barrier because most people don't wear ties, and the people they are around that wear ties are the other the. That's right, the other guy, the suits. Yeah. That's why they call them suits. Yeah, it's not a term of endearment. Exactly. Uh, the the other thing you know, remember when Trump, uh, well, the whole campaign, Trump set himself apart from the others. He was totally different than the others. And don't think that wasn't responsible for his election. I don't want to hang with the lawyers. I don't want to look like the lawyers. I don't want to be anything like them. You know, I want to be totally separate and apart. And, you know, I I won my first election that way. We'd have these debates, and there, you know, there's six people running. I never stood with them. I always stood apart. Uh, And... By not wearing that tie, I separate myself from the pack, you know, and it's more of an informal, relaxed person. Yeah. Yeah. You know, there. Uh, I always have a tie in the briefcase. Yeah. I mean, I'm. I'm not stupid. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> wrong tie, wrong time. Yeah.
Well, Rex, thank you so thank much. You. Uh, this has been a joy, and I really appreciate you taking the time to talk to us. Thank you. Thank you for joining us on Trial Lawyer Nation. I hope you enjoyed our show. If you're listening to this episode on a mobile device, please click on Ratings and Review and leave our show a five-star rating and write a review. And if you're listening to this episode from our website, please leave a five-star rating on the episode page. We'd love to reach more listeners, and doing this will help more attorneys find this podcast. You can also visit our website at www.triallawyernation.com to opt into our mailing list so you can stay updated on our new episodes. I promise we won't spam you. And thanks to your feedback, we've improved our podcast website. There's now a resources tab that you can click that shows you all the books we've mentioned on our podcast. If you have a Facebook account, please send us a request to join a private group called Trial Lawyer Nation Insider Circle. This exclusive group will allow you to hear about our guests before an episode airs, interact with the show, and get a sneak peek at some of the behind the scenes moments. I love to hear from all of you, and our Table Talk episodes are based solely on questions from our fans. So please continue to send us emails at podcast at triallawyernation.com. Thanks for tuning in, and I look forward to having you with us next time on Trial Lawyer Nation. Trial Lawyer Nation is proud to partner with Trial Guides, leader in continuing education for civil plaintiff and criminal defense trial lawyers, with books, DVDs, CLEs, live webinars, and more. Visit trialguides.com and use code TLN19 at checkout to receive our exclusive podcast discount on any Trial Guides products. That's TLN for Trial Lawyer Nation and the number 19. Discount expires August 31st, 2019. We look forward to talking with you again soon as we continue to explore powerful insights from our amazing host and remarkable guests here on Trial Lawyer Nation. Until then, please be sure to subscribe and review this podcast on iTunes or your favorite listening app so we can continue to reach more listeners. Visit us at www.triallawyernation.com to send us a message, listen to previous podcasts, or learn more about Michael Cowan and our guests. This podcast has been hosted by Michael Cowan and is not intended to, nor does it create the attorney-client privilege between our hosts, guests, or contributors and any listener for any reason. Content from the podcast is not to be interpreted as legal advice. All thoughts and opinions expressed herein are only those from which they came.